Well, very pleasant. Good morning to each one of you. If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to open to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we will be there uh, momentarily. Here recently, I've been thinking about some, uh, just kind of thinking over this past year and some things that we have experienced together as a congregation, and I may share some of those with you in a few weeks as we change uh, from one year to the next. One thing I have been thinking of in kind of uh, from a negative perspective, I guess you could say, something that we don't often consider is to think about how many among our number have uh, suffered in their family death. Death is not something that we often like to think about. And yet we know if we have lived for any amount of time that death can come at any time. Death comes often at the most inconvenient time. The times that we are not ready for that to come for our loved ones or even for ourselves But even though death comes at all times of year, for some reason it seems like this time of year as we come toward the end of a year, that there seems to be an increase in the number of deaths that occur. I don't know that I could prove that to you statistically. I don't even know that there is a statistic for that. But it seems to be something that we uh, just perceive happening at this point in the year. I was discussing this with Brother Sonny on Wednesday night, I think, and we were talking about uh, not looking at statistics, but thinking that this particular time of year, at least in our country, as we have the holiday of Thanksgiving and then as we celebrate Christmas, that those two holidays are a time when our families are gathered together more often than not. And perhaps that is the reason why those who are uh, older in age or dealing with health issues pass after they have seen their family, I don't know. But just since Thanksgiving, which by the way has only been a little bit more than two weeks ago, there have been five people that I have known that have passed from this life to the next. Again, although most of us don't like to think about death, it's something that we would rather not consider The wise man says that it is good for us to do so, and to do so at least every once in a while. And so, as unpleasant as it may be for us to consider this subject this morning, I invite you to go to the house of mourning with me today. And we're going to be doing that by reading here the early section of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I have up here on the screen, verses 2 through 4 is going to be the emphasis of our study together this morning, but I want us to put that into the greater context here. So let's begin back at chapter 7 at verse 1 and read down through verse 8. Here Solomon the wise man writes, A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, 
so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. In this text that we are considering this morning, the wise man, I think, is writing a series of statements here. They are a series of statements that really are contrasting one thing with another. In fact, we could say that really, if you had to summarize, at least in my mind, the verses that we've just read here, that Solomon, the wise man, is saying to us, as he looks at all of life and different areas of our life, that this thing is better than this other thing. And while some of these statements to us may seem very logical and understandable, if you think about there the beginning of the chapter at verse 1, that a good name, a good reputation, a good character is better than a good ointment, something that is precious, valuable, but something that's not going to last. Uh, if you think about what he says there at verse 5, that it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. It's better to have someone whom we trust, someone who has the wisdom of God talk to us and maybe even rebuke us and help us get back on the right path than it is to listen to someone who's a fool who doesn't care about God's word and God's way that would just kind of tell us what we want to hear. Some of these statements to us seem very logical and understandable, but others of these defy conventional wisdom, at least the thinking of the world, like the end of verse 1, that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Who wants to experience death, the world would say. Or verse 3, that sorrow is better than laughter. Or even again, verse 5, we can look at it from the other standpoint, that the world would say, just listen to people who will be yes men, who will tell you what you want to hear, rather than listening to one who is telling you the wisdom of God. And I believe what we're going to think about this morning, especially what the wise man says to us there in verse 2, that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. That particular statement of the wise man falls into this latter category that at least to the world that seems to defy conventional thinking and wisdom and logic. If given the choice, how many of us sitting here this morning would rather go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. In other words, to put it into our common language today, how many of us would rather go to a funeral than to go to a party? But that's exactly what the wise man is saying to us in this text. It's better to do that. So I want to think about why. Why is it better for us to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting? What can we learn by going to a funeral, as it were, that we can't learn by going to a party? And I want to consider three reasons that the wise man, I believe, gives us in this text why it is better for us to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Number one, he would say to us, and we're going to kind of work backwards here this morning in the text, but look at what he says here in verse 4. He says that the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. He is saying it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting because it is only really in the house of, of mourning that you can find wisdom there. Although I'm sure that all of us gathered here this morning, even those that may be joining us online, we, we all enjoy having a good time, don't we? We all enjoy life. We all enjoy going to a party. I mean, we have had a number of, of parties, if you want to call it that, uh, 
uh, among this congregation this year that we've gathered together, that we've had potlucks, we've gotten together at people's homes. We have enjoyed good food. We have enjoyed uh, good company. We have enjoyed good conversation. And we enjoy all of those things. But I will tell you that going to a party usually does not impart much, if any, divine wisdom to us. But going to a funeral, going to the house of mourning usually does if we are of the mindset to pay attention. If we have come to the house of mourning trying to listen to gain some wisdom for our own life, then it will impart that wisdom to us. Uh, Gavin, uh, when he first came here several months ago, uh, talked to us in a couple of lessons about the fool from the book of Proverbs. And the Bible does use that term quite often, a fool. But as God uses that particular term in Scripture, it is usually describing a person who is refusing to consider divine wisdom, much less submit their will and their life to divine wisdom and divine instruction. I want you to go back for just a moment to the Psalms in Psalm 14. Psalm 14 and verse 1, the psalmist begins that psalm by making a very clear and pointed statement to us. He says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. This is the person who is foolish, the person who doesn't want to consider God's wisdom, God's thinking, the person who does not want to submit his own thinking to the thinking of God. He is the person that is a fool who has said, there really is no God. And then at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, as the wise man there is really giving his thesis statement or telling us why he is writing the book, he says to us there at verse 7 of chapter 1 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And for at least the first maybe nine or ten chapters of the book of Proverbs, there is this contrast, and as you continue on into the book of Proverbs, there is this contrast between the wise and the foolish person. And the fool is always presented as one who doesn't want to hear what God has to listen to. He is not directing and focusing his life according to God's wisdom. A person like Psalm 14 and verse 1, who is convinced in their mind that God doesn't exist, he doesn't care to hear or to heed his word. He is a person who is only thinking many times of today. His mind is consumed on how can I live for today? He's not thinking about the future. He's not thinking about tomorrow. He is certainly not thinking about pleasing God. He is not thinking about preparing himself to meet God in judgment. And so the wise man says to us here again in our text at verse 4 of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, that the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. This man who is the Bible considers to be a fool, the wise man saying here, his mind is somewhere else. Even if he is at a funeral, his mind is on earthly things. His mind is on pleasing himself. His mind is on doing what he wants to do rather than what God has instructed him to do. But in contrast to that, Solomon is telling us here in this text that a wise person's mind, it may be on the things of this life here and now, but more than that, his mind is also on eternity, even as he is living here in this earthly life. And so when a wise person goes to the house of mourning, what he finds there is wisdom. He doesn't find the wisdom of the world that is here today and gone tomorrow. He doesn't find the wisdom of the world that says one thing today and then tomorrow it's totally opposite of that. 
No, he finds that wisdom that is from God, that wisdom that is true, that wisdom that is stable, that wisdom that will last for eternity. He finds when he goes to the house of mourning that there is a God and that he is alive. He is not dead. He finds when he goes to the house of mourning that it was sin that brought death into the world. He finds when he goes to the house of mourning that life really is short. But not just the fact that life in general is short, but he reflects on his own life and he comes to the conclusion that my life is short. And as he goes to the house of mourning, he is remembering that there is a day of judgment. And one day he will be there. Although certainly we can find God's wisdom as we look into the creation that he has made. And we can find God's wisdom, obviously, as we come to the word that God has given to us. I would suggest to you, as the wise man is trying to suggest to us, that we can find God's wisdom in the house of mourning as well. If we will go to the house of mourning with the right attitude, with the right perspective on life. Because wisdom is there. Secondly, and connected to that, going to the house of mourning is better than going to the house of feasting because it sobers our thinking about life. Notice what he says here at Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 3. He says that sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Again, given the choice, most of us, I think, would rather laugh than cry, wouldn't we? Uh, Of all the emotions that at least our world and our culture today is trying to have us uh, partake in, you know, we, we just laugh at everything. Every, everything should be funny. We want to be entertained all the time rather than crying. But I would ask you, is Solomon only telling us here in verse 3 that it's just better for us to cry than to laugh? Is that the entirety of the point that he is trying to get across here? Is that really the contrast that he's making here between saying it's better to have sorrow than to experience laughter? Well, at least from my perspective, I don't think that's what the message that he's trying to get across. Surely it is the case that the wise man here is really contrasting for us two very differing points of view of life. Two totally ways for us to live our life. It seems to me that he is contrasting here. We can live our life with a soberness and a sobriety about life and about ourselves, or we can live our life with a sense of frivolity that really things don't even matter. If we are like that fool in Psalm 14 and verse 1 who had just said in our heart that there is no God, that God doesn't exist, then there is nothing after this life. We're just here for a little while and then we die and that's it. There's no reason, there's no purpose, there's no meaning in this life. And so it seems to me perhaps Solomon is trying to draw that distinction between how we live life, to live life with a sense of soberness or to live life with a sense of frivolity. The Apostle Paul, of course, spoke a lot about this as he wrote to Christians in the first century, as he instructed and encouraged them as he would us today to live with this sober-mindedness. I want to just look at a couple of those passages as as things for us to think about along these lines this morning. 
First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 4, in the context here, of course, of what has happened to those Christians, those brethren that have died in the Lord, do they have any advantage over those of us who are still alive here on earth? And reminding those Christians that the day of the Lord is going to come. As Paul even writes in the early verses here in chapter 5 of First Thessalonians, you already know these things. But notice what he says about that, why that is important in their, what, what practical implication it has for them in their life every day here on earth. Beginning at verse four, he says, but you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. There's our word. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Twice in this passage, Paul is encouraging these brethren here in Thessalonica, you don't need to live like the rest of the world. You don't need to just think that the day of the Lord has no significance or no meaning in your life even now, but you need to live as people of light not as people of darkness. You need to live with a soberness about life because the day of the Lord will come. Notice what Paul said to the evangelist Titus and what Titus was then to instruct and what he was to teach the brethren that he was working with there on the island of Crete. Titus chapter 2, look at verses 12 and 13. Let's go back to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is instructing Timothy that he needs to tell the brethren that he is working with that God's grace teaches us to live in a certain way, to be a certain kind of people. To live, as he says here, the New American Standard says to live sensibly, but some of the older translations said to live soberly and righteously and godly in this age where so many people are living anything but that way. Where so many people have said in their heart that there is no God and life is just about having fun. We must be a different kind of people than that. Perhaps even more than that, Solomon may be contrasting here in our text in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 3, maybe two responses that we could have towards sin, that we take a serious view towards sin when we find it in our own life, that as we realize that we have sinned, that it would produce within us a godly sorrow that produces repentance Versus an attitude that when we find sin in our life, we just kind of laugh that off maybe as no big deal or we make a mockery of sin as many people in the world around us today are doing. And for, from that standpoint, that sorrow is better than laughter. I want you to think about something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain here, uh, very similar to the Beatitudes that we have recorded for us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, chapters five, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Notice here in Luke chapter 6 at verse 25, uh, Jesus says, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Notice the last part of this verse. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Is Jesus saying or issuing a woe to people who would have a good time, to people who would be in the house of feasting, to people who enjoy going to a party and laughing and 
Just enjoying life? Is that what Jesus is saying here? No, I think we have to take these statements from a spiritual standpoint. And he's saying, woe to you who are laughing now about your spiritual condition before God. Woe to you who are just laughing off your sins and making it seem like that's not a big deal because, hey, God, if he doesn't exist and sin doesn't exist and it doesn't really matter how we live, I think maybe James makes this even clearer when we come to his little book in James chapter 4 and verse 9 as he is talking to us how here about how we need to submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from us. Verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. James is very much in this context saying, you need to mourn, you need to weep over your sins that your laughter needs to be turned into mourning. He's not saying don't enjoy life. He is saying in relation to our sin that sorrow is better than laughter. I don't know about you, but every time I go to the house of mourning, it is a time for me to seriously and soberly reflect on my life. And to think about where I stand with God at that particular point in my life. For me to think about all the mistakes that I have made along the way. For me to consider the shortcomings that I have in my life. To think about the sins that I have committed. To think about how many times I have been very selfish in the way that I have lived my life and the choices that I have made. To think about all the wasted opportunities as God has given me so many opportunities and open doors to serve Him and to serve others or to stand up for what is right. And maybe I didn't take advantage of those. But that comes in going to the house of mourning. That, doesn't, that kind of thinking usually doesn't result when we go to the house of feasting. And so, brothers and sisters, if we allow the house of mourning to sober our thinking, and to change our living from that day forward, then sorrow indeed is better than laughter. The end of that verse back in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 3 uh, may be a little bit hard to understand, especially the way that the New American Standard translates it there. As it says to us, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. I like the way that the New King James translates that. And it goes along, I think, and helps me at least better understand what Solomon is saying in the first part of this verse, that sorrow is indeed better than laughter because the New King James says, for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. That we come face to face with the reality of death, which leads us to our third point. And the third reason I believe that the wise man gives us here as to why it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting is because it forces us as much as we don't like it to and as, a, as uncomfortable as it can make us sometimes, it forces us to consider our own earthly end. Go back here if you're not back in that text to Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2 again. Here the wise man says to us, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Why? Because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Again, when we're at a party, when we're having good, clean fun, hopefully as Christians, we're not necessarily in that situation, in that environment, forced to think about our own death, are we? 
But when we go to a funeral, when we are at the house of mourning, we are, if there is, is anything going on at all in our minds at that particular point, if we have any honesty in our heart, then we will be forced at that particular point to think about our own death. Because it is in the house of mourning that we come face to face with the sobering reality that one day in the not too distant future, that's going to be me. You know, as we read scripture, we find that God does give us some information about death. But as far as I can tell, he doesn't give us all the details about exactly what is going to happen when we die. But God does very strongly and repeatedly state throughout Scripture that death is a reality for each one of us. That unless the Lord returns first, we are going to experience death. I want you to think about some things that Solomon says even here in this book of Ecclesiastes, back to chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness... And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. From an earthly perspective, if you take God out of the picture, he's saying, well, what does it matter how you live your life? <laughs> All of us are headed to the same place. All of us are headed to experience death. Over in chapter 9 at verse 2, again, Solomon says pretty much the same thing here. He says, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Again, Solomon says it doesn't matter what kind of choices you've made in your life, whether you have made the decision that you're going to give your life and your will totally to God and you're going to live in a way that pleases Him, or you're like the fool again in Psalm 14 and verse 1 who just says there is no God and I'm my own God and I'm going to live life the way that I want to live. Whatever we make those choices about life, he says the reality is that all of us are going to die you may already be thinking about this text in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 where the writer says there that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this comes judgment. Again, I would remind you this morning that unless our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns first, that all of us are going to experience death. If you've lived long enough, you have come to this conclusion already about what I'm about to say. But you know that death is no respecter of persons. Every day in this world, there are infants that die. Every day in this world, there are teenagers that die. 
that there are 20-somethings that die. There, there are people who are in the prime of life, that their life is cut short. There are young parents who die. There are spouses who die. There are older people who die. Every day in this world, there are rich people who die. There are poor people who die. There are healthy people who die. There are sick people who die. And on and on the list can go. Brothers and sisters, death is no respecter of persons. And so it may be the case as you're sitting here this morning, you look at yourself and your own life and you think, hey, I'm young, (laughs) or at least younger, and I'm healthy as far as I know, and things seem to be going well in my life, and you're thinking, yeah, I know that someday I'm going to die, but that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. You know, I'm just 15 or 20 or 30 years old, and I've got 60, 70, 80 more years to live, and then I'll get serious about serving the Lord As you get older, that reality becomes clearer. Did you know that here this year in 2022, the life expectancy in this country for males is 78 and the life expectancy for females is 82? I know those of you who are teenagers and in your 20s, you're thinking, boy, boy, those numbers sound big. (laughs) You know, it's going to be a long time till I get there. But I'm here to tell you that it goes by quickly. Because as I look at myself at 46 years old, if I live to the average age, I have already lived more than half of my earthly life. And that's a sobering thought. And so wherever we are on the spectrum of life, whether we are young or middle-aged or older, we all need to come to grips with this reality that one day we're going to die. We all need to be impressed with the truth that God gives us that life does go by so, so quickly. A couple of passages from the Psalms and then we'll be done this morning. From Psalm 39, just to read verse 5, notice what the psalmist says here about life, about his life. He says, Behold, you have made my days as hand breasts, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Maybe you have experienced what, what, what the psalmist is saying here on these cold mornings that we have had recently. You, you walk outside your house to get in the car, and you take a breath, and you can see that, that breath, but it only lasts for just a second or two, doesn't it? And then, boof, it's, it's gone. It's just like a vapor, as James talks about in his book in James chapter 4, that life is like a vapor. It is here for a brief time, and then it is gone just as quickly as it came. And the wise man is saying to us, or the psalmist rather here is saying to us, this is life. This is just like a breath. This is just like the, the breadth of your hand. That it goes by very quickly. And then from Psalm 90 that Todd read for us a moment ago, as Moses writing this psalm here, contrasting the everlasting nature of God to our own mortality here upon earth. Be impressed with what he says here at verses 9 and 10. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. I know when life is just beginning for you that it seems like 
those 70 or 80 years are a long ways off. But I'm here to tell you this morning that life goes by so, so quickly. And what going to the house of mourning does for us, if we are in the right frame of mind, it focuses us to face our own earthly end head on. We can't escape it because it's coming for all of us. And since that is the reality of life here on earth, then let us take the admonition of Moses to heart here in Psalm 90 and verse 12, where he says, So teach us, asking God to teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. It may seem like a strange statement on its surface, but I hope I've at least given you some things to think about, some sobering things to consider As the wise man says to us in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. I hope that our short trip to the house of mourning this morning has done what it is intended to do, that it has given you God's wisdom about life and death. It has allowed us to sober our thinking and therefore to sober our living so that we can live in a way that honors God, that pleases Him, and we will be ready, we will be prepared when it comes for our time to depart this world and to be with Him eternally. This is not a rah-rah lesson this morning, but this is one I think that we all need. I know I need it from time to time. What about you as we come toward the close of this service, as we come toward the close of another year? Where do you stand with God? Are you right in His sight? Are you ready to meet Him in judgment? You can be, and God wants you to be. I want you to think about that question. Am I really ready to die? Am I prepared? Really think about that in your mind this morning as we're about to sing this invitation song. And if those thoughts aren't pleasant, I hope it would move you, it would stir you to get out of your seat and to come to the front. Or maybe you just need to take care of things between you and God. But whatever that might be for you, if you need to act, if you need to be right with God this morning, I hope that you will do that this very hour as we stand and as we sing.